After working at VMware for 10 years, Jerry Chen developed an expertise in technology companies. Today, he works at Greylock, where he looks at deals in the infrastructure and developer tooling space. Jerry is an expert in go-to-market strategy and makes investments in technologies that have a good chance at becoming large and profitable businesses. In today's episode, Jerry and I talk through the dynamics of modern infrastructure investing, including examples of deals such as Chronosphere and Rockset, both of which have been featured in previous episodes of the podcast. Jerry gives his perspective on deal terms, board dynamics, and everything else that goes into a smart investment. We are looking for writers for Software Engineering Daily. If you're interested in writing for us, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Jerry Chen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You worked at VMware for 10 years. How did that lay the foundation for your career? You know, I, I tell all the friends and young engineers come out of university to find you know, the best damn company with the smartest people and just go learn and work. And so I think two things. One, just the talent VMware was attracting behind Diane Green and Mendel and the team in the early days made my career. Because you just understand what a great engineer, a great sales team, a great product team looks like and you know, learn from them. And secondly, from a technology and business model perspective, I learned what it meant to build a platform business, which is very rare. And I think every 10 or 15 years, we see these platform shifts and going from, you know, client server from mainframe or client server to cloud and virtualization clearly was a platform shift in the enterprise data center. So I learned, you know, all the dynamics of what it meant to build a platform business. What was the hardest period of time at VMware that you encountered? What was the biggest struggle? You know, in the early days, the hardest thing about VMware was you had this kind of hyper growth of virtualization as a technology. And there's a million things virtualization could do better. So from compute, clearly was the start. Networking, storage, security, enterprise, desktop productivity. And there was two challenges. One was rank ordering the priorities of which opportunities made sense for the company. And number two was trying to figure out how to dedicate enough resources to make these things work. And for example, I helped launch something called VDI, virtualized desktops in the early days. And when VMware's core server business was going gangbusters, growing, you know, 100, 200% year over year, one of the hard things was, A, getting enough attention on a new business, launching that, you know, inside VMware and accelerating kind of zero to one a brand new enterprise desktop business inside the company, which means getting engineers, getting product, getting sales, everyone aligned around a new effort for VMware. Because I think all great companies can't be just one product or one market. And so what Diane Green wanted to do early was launch not just its server business, but also a desktop business, a test and dev business, a productivity business. And so I think one of the hard parts for me as a young product manager was marshalling you know, all the resources around the company and really testing myself as a leader within the company to get that done. And it wasn't easy because you can imagine the distractions of, of hypergrowth, doubling headcount, doubling revenue. It was just an amazing time, but I think getting that done was one of the, the highlights of my career early in the early days. You helped launch Cloud Foundry, which is one of the first open source platform as a service. Can you tell me what that was like? That was probably a, a fun second act. So launching the desktop virtualization business was kind of the first act of my kind of Toro duty at VMware. The second was working for Paul Moritz, and he had this vision of creating a cloud platform that would be independent of Amazon and Google and, and a nascent Azure cloud service at the time. And so, you know, Paul hired 
three engineers that he had worked with in the past, Mark Lakowski, Derek Collison, and Vadim Spivak, who were at Google. And the four of us kind of noodled around on what this, you know, what we used to call at VMware layer two, right? The first layer was the virtualization of the cloud layer. What would be a second layer? And we came up with this business plan around Cloud Foundry. And it was going to be this like platform as a service, this middle layer that would be cloud agnostic. And one of the conversations we had was, hey, how do we bring this to market? Do we sell it as enterprise software or do we open source it? And mind you, this was the early days of VMware. We just came out of fighting kind of the open source hypervisor wars against KVM. And so there was definitely some antibodies floating around against open source. But Paul, given his experience at Microsoft, new Windows operating system fighting Linux, how open source often has uh, network effects, has kind of a winner-take-most dynamics and a first-to-market dynamics. If you get there first, you kind of get the momentum going. And so the thing was Derek Collison, who was on the Cloud Foundry team, and Mark Lukowski coined it the nuclear option, is open sourcing Cloud Foundry, which would basically move the value either down to layer one, the cloud layer, or in VMware's case, the hypervisor layer, or up the stack into the application layer. And in doing so, we would try to gather the ecosystem around Cloud Foundry and make it as wide and open as a ecosystem as possible for more developers. And so Paul gave us the charge to do this. You know, we ran full speed ahead and open sourced it, gosh, I think seven, eight years ago now, maybe longer. And it was kind of, I think, changed the, the inflection of, of VMware in a couple ways. One, it made VMware more of an open source friendly company because it was like one of our first major open source projects coming from, from a closed source software company. And number two, it was moving VMware into a whole different market. This the second layer of application infrastructure, which you never played before. And finally, just having a presence on the cloud. So a legitimate story same can run on a private cloud or run in Amazon or run in Google or run in Azure was a strategic move for VMware. And I think in the, in the ensuing 10 years, they've really taken that strategy and you know executed very well against it in our Pat Elsinger to kind of be this common layer across all the clouds. At a certain point, every major technology company has to compete with AWS at this point. Describe the dynamics between VMware and AWS and how that has evolved over time. It's interesting. One of the philosophies I had as a product manager was I worry mostly about the customers that you're not talking to, not the customers you're talking to, because a lot of large companies tend to overserve the customers that are the noisiest, that have the biggest purchase orders, et cetera. You overserve those customers. And the customers that you don't talk to in the early days were the small engineers and small engineering teams that were on AWS and, and you know, this nascent uh, Amazon cloud service. And that's, you know, the classic innovators dilemma where you have these small teams kind of develop on AWS and eventually they grow bigger and bigger and become more significant. And I think the early days, we didn't spend enough time at VMware talking to the customers we weren't serving. And eventually, you know, Amazon figured out this developer aesthetic of going directly to developers, you know, an, an API for compute, an API for storage, an API for networking, and really captured the imagination of the developers and led what's going to be a major, major platform shift from on-premise data centers, where VMware had a, a leading position, to kind of cloud data centers. And originally, VMware felt like it was a huge rival in terms of you had to make a choice between VMware proprietary software on-premise or, you know, going to AWS and kind of this cloud solution. And pretty soon, I think, as 
be on the right side of history was everything's moving to the cloud. And VMware realized that, you know, eventually and said, hey, we're not going to be able to build up our own cloud because just the, the the CapEx and the scale required now to compete in the cloud layer is huge, right? Look at the amount of dollars Amazon, Google, and Microsoft are spending. There was no way VMware could actually become a cloud provider in their own right. And so, look, if you, if you can't beat them, you join them and basically try to use the momentum of the shift to the cloud to benefit VMware. I think they've done a great job the past you know, four or five years under Pat or Goo and the team there to say, look, we're going to embrace cloud and be this platform for Oracle, Google, Microsoft, Azure, and your private data center. And so, Sending, finding them, I think they've done a great job now embracing the, the shift to cloud and just saying, hey, we're going to be the trusted partner to CIOs. We're going to help you, know, you bridge from your private data center on-premises to the cloud. Very interesting. What's your perspective on modern VMware more broadly, how the company is structured? You know, I haven't followed them as closely in the past few years, but what they've done a great job, I think, is moving to new markets. So I think when they acquired Nasira in 2013, moving to kind of the software-defined networking space, they've clearly moved up the stack from compute and storage, which really VMware was dominating in the early days. So they've moved to new businesses like uh, software-defined networking. And then more recently, they've used M&A strategically buying kind of endpoint security companies and really moving to adjacent markets like security. So I think what modern VMware has done is one, embrace cloud, and then two, move into new markets strategically like we tried to do with Cloud Foundry, you know, 10 years ago. And so I think the company remains relevant as a strategic partner to most Fortune 500 enterprises across the globe for that reason. What's your perspective on what Dell has done more broadly, becoming a sort of conglomerate? Yeah, I mean, that to me, both as technology investor and uh, technology executive over the past 20 years of my career has been amazing to see Dell evolve, both the company and you know what Michael Dell himself has done in terms of moving from PCs to servers to storage to, to your point, this uh, technology conglomerate holding company of multiple companies. And I think it's a combination. It goes beyond my expertise around what they've done on the financial engineering side in terms of creating value for shareholders through tracking stocks and through taking um, EMC and VMware private and public again. But at the same time, finding synergies between multiple businesses that you thought weren't interesting or were slow growth and kind of revitalizing it and then you know becoming this, this modern day technology conglomerate that I think has a lot of relevance. So... It's amazing to see what they've done compared to some other companies of their same generation. If you look at HP and IBM, which kind of 20 years ago were also in the PC server business, the fate of those two companies versus the fate of Dell, Dell, I think, has clearly outdistanced those rivals in the past 10 years. As a venture investor, do you stay focused on your lane of the early stage, mid stage companies, or and and do you just think about early and mid stage venture deals, or do you scrutinize these kind of big M and A things, other developments in the in the larger scale capital environment? I, I think you have to do both, Jeff. I think for sure we look at the big large cap companies for a couple reasons. One, you want to understand, you know what those buyers are thinking strategically. So Cisco, Dell, HP. Microsoft, from an M&A perspective, from a, from a product perspective, 
you know, what matters to them. Because one, as an investor, you're trying to figure out which companies you're going to acquire. Or number two, you're trying to find uh, white spaces, right? These companies are going to create markets around them that they're going to underserve. And so understanding what's a priority for all these large companies from HP, Microsoft, Oracle, SAP, Salesforce, VMware included, is one thing that as a venture investor we think about because you're trying to see two or three moves ahead on, on the chessboard. That said, you know, clearly what I do m- day in, day out as a venture investor focus on seed and series A is understanding and what the new technologies, the new trends are, the new products are, are in the market, and then trying to paint a path from where we are today to four, five, six, seven, ten 10 years down the line to make sure both as an investor and as well as a, a board member and a shepherd of some of these startups we're moving to where the, the proverbial puck is going so that in five, six, seven years, we're in a strategic position um, to either A, go public, or, or B, get acquired by a larger company for a strategic premium. Okay, we can start talking about venture now as opposed to your past. Tell me about your two favorite investments in the developer tooling space. You know, you have to say all, all your investments are your favorite investments, Jeff. But if, if you focus on the developer tooling space writ large, I say two of the most recent ones are Rockset and the real-time analytics space, which I believe you had Venkat on um, on the podcast in the past, and a more recent one called Chronosphere that I know you had Rob Skillington on in the past, focused on centralized observability and you know and high-scale metrics. So both of those, I think, are examples of of great engineering teams building deep, deep IP, but also they kind of see the future. They know where developers and the markets are headed. In the case of Rockset, they're saying, hey, we've got batch analytics, data warehouses, a lot of kind of databases today, but the market's moving towards more real-time information, real-time analytics. And one analogy, you know, I talked to Venkat and Druba, the two co-founders there, is this evolution from maybe MapReduce to Spark and streaming. You know, MapReduce was kind of very batch-oriented processing data. Spark became real-time and, you know, led to Databricks. And so I think Rockset sees the same kind of evolution towards real-time analytics, and they're just building a, a great platform for this kind of cloud indexing database for developers. And it's like an API to ingest your data at high speed and run SQL queries against it. Likewise, Chronosphere, Martin, and Rob built M3 at Uber, which was Uber's centralized uh, metric system for both applications, infrastructures, and also business metrics. And what they saw there is the, the cost using you know a bunch of the standard open source technologies around Prometheus and even one of the commercial offerings was just prohibitively too expensive. Didn't scale, it wasn't fast enough. And so they built a purpose-built database called M3DB that was able to serve higher scale metrics, more, more data, um, higher cardinality as we call it, as a fraction of the cost. And I think, again, like Roxette, Chronosphere is on the right side of history because even the smaller companies out there are seeing the amount of data increase exponentially. So it's not just app metrics, infrastructure metrics, but business metrics. And as things get more complex, you're going to want more and more data, more and more traces, more and more logs. And so if you centralize that all through Chronosphere, you can actually have kind of this, this uh, weapon, if you will, for developers to kind of see what's going on inside their apps and, and their business. So both of these are just examples. I think great founders, great teams with really deep IP on the right side of history going to where, where, the, where the puck is going. So those are pretty easy examples. You've got a, a 
basically a a developer tool in Rockset that holds a bunch of data, has a bunch of uh, API calls that are going to be tightly coupled to your infrastructure. So it's very easy to imagine that product expanding in each customer. Uh, kind of the same thing with Chronosphere, where you have a, a hosted database solution for metrics, basically like a, a data dog with a really powerful database behind it, potentially. These are two microcosmic examples that illustrate some examples of of what makes a good developer tooling investment. Do you have any other broad lessons, uh, themes, motifs as to what makes a valuable investment in developer tooling? Yeah, I'd say it's an interesting question in terms of there's a bunch of developer tools and a bunch of infrastructure technologies out there. And some, as you know, become huge companies like a, like a Datadog, and some really don't go anywhere. And from my experience of past seven, eight years in venture, Jeff, I'm really looking for a couple things. One, large markets, which is basically a huge pain point. So you can either point to an existing market like a Datadog and say, okay, Chronosphere is that market, but bigger or better. Or it can say there's emerging use case, emerging new market. And so I would say that the two themes are, let me look at existing market like metrics, observability, logs, trace, et cetera, and say, okay, how can we make this 10x better, 10x cheaper, 10x faster? Now, I think that the theme around Chronosphere and my philosophy around investing is, okay, let's go after these large markets, large companies, but you know, with some deep IP that can actually change the game. With Rockset, it's kind of the other theme around developer tool investing is, okay, what's a non-market that's around today? There's no such thing as kind of a real-time analytics database, a real-time converged indexing database, right? That doesn't exist today. But if I connect a couple of dots and trends and say, you know, what is the next evolution of a data warehouse? What's the next evolution of analytics? And, you know, draw lines from people that have lived this battle that led to kind of a rock set investment in terms of real-time analytics. And the third thing I would say is one of the things I look for as an investor is teams that have lived this battle before, right? Because either, one, they're going to build this new technology, new company out in the open for the first time, which is a viable strategy. But two, a lot of the teams out there have built or handled these problems inside larger companies. So in the case of rock set, Venkat and Druba built something very similar at Facebook. And so from their lessons at Facebook and that data infrastructure, which is one of the largest, most complex in the world, came the lessons that led to Roxette. And with Rob and Martin, similar lessons at Uber, where they had you know, probably the second or third largest uh, metric system behind Google and, and Facebook, they actually solved a bunch of the same problems. So if I could say, one, existing market with better technology that's 10x faster, cheaper, or, or better, or two, a new market where you can do something different. And then three, if you can find a team that's kind of walked this journey before, and that could be research in a university, coming out of an existing company, that gives you a lot more confidence as an investor. The fourth way is, is you know, you just invest in a new team, a new product without a lot of history, and those work too, but you're really betting that this team has enough insight and technology behind them that they're going to build something new for the first time. Do you separate the categories of developer tooling and infrastructure? Do you think those are two different categories or does it even matter? Are they the same thing? 
I think there are two different categories, but they're blurring in some levels. I'd say I had this thesis a couple years ago around developer-defined infrastructure, right? That what Amazon has done is put an API on term on top of cloud infrastructure, networking, storage, compute, data, et cetera. And so all of a sudden, infrastructure is now exposed as an API and increasingly where we're going with serverless computing, it's a function call, right? It's an API call. And so I think infrastructure historically was very different. Like storage was, was you know, deep, deep in the layers. And um, API calls were definitely a lot higher, touching more of the application developer. But increasingly, they're, they're blurring. And, you know, what cloud has done is given access to your mobile developer, your web developer, uh, the ability to manipulate and change infrastructure with an API call. And so I still look at these at, as different markets because sometimes they're selling to a developer, sometimes they're selling to uh, a storage administrator, a security administrator. And so it's not just the technology that I think about, it's also who the persona is of the buyer and the persona is of the user. And more or less, I think if the persona is developer, then I kind of think about it more from the developer lens. If the persona is going to be more of a system admin, server admin, security admin, then I more or less think about it from the lens of an infrastructure company. So that's it's more or less not just the technology layer that I care about, but it's also the the, the buyer just the buyer persona and the and the user persona, which I think matters more and more going forward. A lot of the go to market used to be around conferences before the COVID pandemic happened. And it has changed the go-to-market for a lot of these developer tooling companies. I just use that as a small example. Do you, do you know any kind of trends in the in the metagame? What has made it different post-COVID to build a developer tooling company? It's interesting. I think in this, this post-COVID world, we're probably seeing a, a a shift for sure, more towards virtual events, online conferences, et cetera. And even after uh, we have a vaccine for COVID, hopefully in, in a year, we will probably see more of a shift towards online events, even when we have real conferences returned. I would say in this post-COVID world, what happens is uh, content marketing matters more. I think uh, lowering the friction to trial matters. And if you think about any developer product from uh, awareness and trial, the, you have to reduce the friction even more. And so in the before, awareness would come from a conference, like you said, or a webinar or a blog. And then reducing the friction for trial would either be an open source technology that you could download, a cloud service you could spin up quickly. But increasingly what's going to happen now, since there's less conferences, you're going to have to fight the awareness game better. Right, so making sure that you have a very focused message for the content you're producing, be a lot more targeted on the persona you're trying to reach. Like, it's not just developers generically, but a, a, a data scientist, an infrastructure developer, or a security developer. And then finally, since a lot of folks are going to get bombarded with a bunch of new technologies and products and, and, and SaaS offerings, how do you reduce the friction of trying the product, Jeff, and then showing value right away? I mean, one of the things Twilio did so great was in 13 or 14 seconds, you could write an API and have an SMS message, right? The time to value, the time to aha was, was instantaneous. And so for a lot of these developer technologies, you want to have low friction to try the product, but then also you want to also have this kind of time to value, time to aha uh, increase within minutes, if not seconds. And that's how you get this developer adoption uh, hooked, and then once you got this nice loop of awareness through content or focused uh, marketing, 
reducing the friction to trial, reducing the, the time to value or time to aha, that's a nice loop. And you just repeat over and over again and hopefully scale that up. And developer tools and developer technologies and infrastructure cloud companies that break at any one of those levels from awareness, trial, and time to value, that's just introducing friction in, in their sales process that's going to be even more difficult to overcome in this kind of COVID world. Are there still undiscovered deals in infrastructure? Are, are, are all the good investments like Chronosphere or Rockset, like those are, I look at Chronosphere and Rockset, I'm like, these are pretty obvious investments. I mean, they're, they're super competitive deals for both of them, I believe. Are there things that are still borderline? I, actually, I guess a borderline thing that comes to mind is uh, one company that, that I invested in is uh, Render, Render.com, which is like a layer two cloud provider. And it's, I think it was borderline investment for a lot of people. But it seems like the vast majority of infrastructure deals are pretty cut and dry and they just become super competitive, super fast. Are there still like kind of questionable investments that are borderline that end up being sleeper hits? I think so. I mean, if not, then this job uh, would be a lot less interesting, you know? So I, I think referencing kind of the framework we talked about earlier on the podcast, a lot of the infrastructure investing is known markets, right? So you can say Rockset and Chronosphere are known markets, known problems, and there were very competitive investments because people saw, right, huge market around Chronosphere, like Datadog, Splunk, et cetera, uh, just a better team, better technology. And then there's like a lot of open source validation from the Prometheus community adopting M3, for example, or Rockset, great team going to real-time analytics. But I think what, what a lot of investors miss on these kind of sleeper hits is either the next generation of technology platform shifts, right, in terms of like, hey, how fast do these things change? So either A, we misestimate the timing to adopt things like containers, or we misestimate the adoption of something like um, serverless computing, or, you know, AI infrastructure, you know, so we, we misestimate like how fast these things will become a real platform. Or number two, well, we often misestimate or get wrongs behavior change. Now on the consumer side, a lot of consumer investing is all about behavior change. You know, imagine a world where we didn't uh, have the ability to call a, a car on demand or order food on demand or, or book a bedroom in someone's, you know, Airbnb. That is a lot of behavior change. I would say most enterprise software, especially infrastructure, it's largely budget replacement, largely known markets. But every once in a while, we find a new behavior change or a new usage of a new technology. And that could be a, a platform shift, like moving to cloud or mobile. Or it could be a technology paradigm shift, like going from batch to real time or the influence of AI. But I think the ones that are less obvious, Jeff, are, are these new markets that are emerging that require some kind of behavior change from, from the buyer or the user. And I think those are the sleeper hits. The non-sleeper hits are super competitive. Tell me more about competitive dynamics of a deal like Chronosphere. Like Chronosphere is super competitive. What were the dynamics there? You know, every VC or every investor approaches investing differently. And I would say there's a saying, there's a founder market fit, right? You want to find the right founder for the market. And you say Rob and Martin, Martin Mao, Rob Skillington, his co-founders of Chronosphere were the perfect founders for this market. I will also say there's a there's a founder VC fit, founder investor fit. And I'll be the first to say, like, not every founder is for me. I'm, I'm probably not the right VC board member investor for every founder. So I think, one, trying to understand the type of founders 
I, I click with, I can work with, and vice versa is, is one thing that to be self-aware with. And then number two, I think it's, it's building a lot of trust over time. And so with Rob and Martin, I first got connected with them, you know, months before they started the company through a, through a mutual friend at Uber. And, you know, they were just thinking about their futures and what to do post Uber, but they weren't ready to start a company yet. And then I, you know, spend a lot of time one-on-one with each of them. And it was old fashioned, I say, rapport building investing. I flew to Seattle to uh, spend some time with Martin on a weekend. I flew to New York to spend some time with Rob. Then I flew back to Seattle, spend more time with Martin, and then went to a conference in, in Portland, spend more time with Martin. So I would say over the course of four or five months in several meetings, several hours, I was able to build both the understanding of the two of them as individuals and founders and, and vice versa. They got the chance to meet me and know what it would be like as a, as a thought partner and a board member. And I got conviction not only on the two of them as founders, but conviction on the investment thesis at the same time. And so it got to the point where, you know, you can, you can ask them, the, it was almost like they cannot conceive of not starting the company without me as an investor. And I could not imagine not investing in these two, two phenomenal founders. And so when other investors tried to lead the round, it, we already had a connection and kind of understanding that it was, you know, um, I'm going to be their their anchor investor in their first round. And so that's how that happened. And I would say Roxette and Venkat and Drubo were very similar. I first met the two of them, uh, Venkat, when he was leaving Facebook, and he wasn't sure what he wanted to do post his, his, his stint and tenure of Facebook. And we spent a lot of time talking about technology, careers, leadership in, in engineering. And at some point in time, we started riffing about real-time data and data architecture, data infrastructure. And when it came time for him to raise his series seed round, you can ask Venkat, but he probably felt like, oh, you know, Jerry's a logical guy to raise his money from because not only... Uh, does he understand the technology and has experience from you know my ten years of VMware? But I was there from the exception. So I would say every VC is going to be different, Jeff, and how they sell themselves and how they sell the firm. But for me, it's a combination of understanding deeply the technology in the market and, and showing my value as a as a product executive, but also building this connection that look, I am not for everybody. But for a category of founders that really want to build defining companies and developer tooling and cloud infrastructure. I like to think of myself as one of the one of the short list of VCs you want to work with. What have you learned about closing a deal that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Aside from just getting in front of it and becoming intimate with the founders in advance of of a company being started. You know, I, I would say there's a bunch of lessons I've learned over the past seven, eight years, and there's there's a lot more learning to be done. But I would say if I could go back in time, I would probably do be a slightly more aggressive in terms of more investments, right? I think these markets are just huge uh, in terms of we thought these markets were big. We thought the trend towards cloud and mobile and, and AI and, and data was was big. I misestimated the size of these markets by a considerable lot. So I would say if I could do it again, there's a bunch of investments that I would have um, been more aggressive on and, and tried to invest in more companies because these markets are huge. Secondly, I would say for the companies that you have conviction on early, once you have conviction, like don't be shy about price, don't be shy about dollars investing in the companies. 
uh, once you have conviction, you should be all in. You know, find the team, find the market, invest as much as you can, as early as you can, and as often as you can, round after round. Because the best way to actually build a portfolio in some of these outsized returns is having that conviction and, and putting a lot of uh, capital behind it. Uh, because once you find something that's going to be an outlier, like a rock set or chronosphere, you just want to be you know, as involved to have as much capital as work as possible. The different phases of venture, it's often described as the sourcing, the picking, the, uh, what is it? The something, I don't know. So I forget what stage three is. And then there's like closing the deal, closing the deal. What have you learned about closing a deal that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Yeah. The framework I think you're referring to is like seeing, see, decide when, and work the deal, right? Seeing the deals, deciding to do the investment, and winning it, closing it. I, so I there's, say three sta- there's three stages? I thought there was four stages. And I think work. The fourth stage is working the deal as an oh. investor, board member, company builder. How do you, how do you recruit? How do you um, help get advice? How do you help connect, find customers? And you know, I think the fifth for us as Greylock is how do you be a good partner to everyone else on the team? So we, we kind of look at ourselves in those five categories, seeing the best investments, deciding which ones to, to chase, trying to win and close these deals. And then we'll get back to your question, uh, helping work as a board member, an active builder, recruiting uh, employees, engineers, designers, um, customers, and then finally um, be a good partner to the team that, that, that have the lucky lucky chance to work with at Greylock. I think winning the deal is a combination of A, selling, like selling the value of, of, of Greylock, the team, myself, like how it can help you, Jeff, as a founder, build a, a category-defined t- company. And I, I, I wish that I, I worked on those sales skills. I mean, as a, I'm a product manager by by training and and at heart. You know, selling was not something that was natural to me, to be honest. Um, and the, the marketing aspect of trying to market myself, I'm, I'm still working with. But I would uh, go back and work on my my sales craftsmanship, and then number two, I would say uh, we get hung up on the negotiation of some of these terms. And I would say there's some terms I care about, like you know, I believe in good governance of of of, of the company, making sure the companies are well run, and you know, the incentives and the investors and the founders and the employees are all aligned. There's some terms I think we realize over time don't matter so much, and we shouldn't hang on them. But I'd say that the closing the deal is also the most stressful time, Jeff, because it's also the most exciting. Let's say you're the founder, that negotiation or closing the deal is the only time when you and I are on the opposite side of the table, right? We're, we're negotiating terms, we're negotiating price, we're negotiating option pool, board seats, et cetera. And then after that negotiation is done, we're, we're back on the same side. And so it's interesting because sometimes you you can bruise feelings or see true colors during that negotiation process that may help or may hinder your relationship after the investment. And I think if you do that correctly, you know, you're not going to agree on everything in every closing of a deal. But if you agree on the process with the founder, how you decide on how many board seats or how big the option pool should be or other terms, then you get to see how the, the founders and yourself are going to work as a board post-investment, post-close, as a, as a team trying to solve problems in the company because there are going to be a ton of problems in the company. And so I, I think, you know, like I said, don't overthink some of the terms early. Work on the, the sales craft of the job to kind of close the deal and, and convince the founder that, you know, I'm the right person to help you build a, a compelling, character-defining company. And number third is 
you know, agreeing on a process to reach a decision on closing the deal on some of these these points of negotiation. Because if you do that correctly, I find you build better trust post investment as as a board member and advisor. If you do it incorrectly, do it poorly, then all of a sudden you can you know you get the relationship off on a on a bad foot, and sometimes it's hard to recover from that. What role does a board member play? It's um it varies. I think different investors have different philosophies as a board member. My goal is to be, you know, that voice, that person you need as a founder at any given stage of the company or any any given time. So sometimes it's being a cheerleader, you know, encouraging them when they hit a tough time. Um, sometimes it's being the devil's advocate, the naysayer, like, hey Jeff, are you sure you want to like you know buy this company or move into like the European market so soon? You know, so there's there's basically trying to be that thought partner and try to be the persona, that voice in the room that they need to hear at any given time to to make them think clearly, slowly, but carefully about these big decisions. And as a board member, I think there's only two or three things at any given time that you should be focused on with the company because there's only two or three decisions you as a founder, Jeff, um, need to care about and get right. There are there are make or break decisions. So in the early stage, it's trying to help find product market fit. At the later stage of the company life cycle is thinking about scaling the company, launching new markets, new products, maybe going public, hopefully if you're lucky. And so at every stage of the company, my goal is to be kind of that that right voice in the room and, and sharing my experiences and being that that tough thought partner. Along the way, there's a bunch of things that any good board member would do is like help recruit early employees, help find customers, help navigate uh, you know business development deals. Um, help think about culture. I think the, the past five months, what's been going on in the country, both on a you know a healthcare level, economic issues, but a social level, has been pretty dramatic. And so, helping the founders and the teams navigate tough times culturally with the company, with the team, when everyone's remote, that's kind of an under talked about version of the job as well. And so, there's the thought partner stuff. There's the mechanical stuff, recruiting, giving advice, finding customers. But then there's also, I think, the coaching aspect of the job, which my job is kind of a personal trainer or coach to you, Jeff, as a founder saying, hey, let me get you to be the best version of yourself as a CEO, co-founder, CTO, whatever role you have. Back in the day, there were these adversarial board dynamics where the, the CEO often got removed by the board and got replaced with somebody in a in a pressed suit and tie. It seems like those board dynamics no longer exist. Have, are there any board dynamics, specific ones that have changed since you started in venture or since you recall venture? You know, I think, you know, those board dynamics happen um, still. I think there's fewer ties in the boardroom these days and fewer press suits, especially when we're all on Zoom. But I think, you know, one of the things I've learned the past seven years is how to be a good board member, not just to the founders and CEOs, but also collaborating with my peers on the board. And they could be other venture capitalists or other outside independent board members. And I think that dynamic still holds true today, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 10 or 20 years, because you're really looking to the board as, as a team to make the right thing the right decision as a fiduciary is for the company. And sometimes the right decision, Jeff, is, hey, having conversation with the CEO founder saying, maybe you're not in the right job anymore and making a tough decision. 
it's hopefully not a surprise and it's hopefully not to your point adversarial like you know you're fired and, and what you see in the movies and it's more of a conversation because if I'm doing my job as as a coach and partner to you as a founder you're going to reach agreement with me and the board members that yes we should you know find a new CEO or yes we should bring in a number 2 president CRO i would say it's been probably a lot more problem solving these days than anything else. And, and maybe the, the, the press suit and tie, that dynamic still happens some places. But I would say these decisions still happen in terms of uh, when, when teams and founders and companies hit certain milestones and there's a bunch of disagreement on what to do with people, what to do with the company. But I think if I'm doing my job right and the board's doing their job right, it's more of a conversation to reach consensus than kind of a you know, a five to four vote or a three to six vote where, you know, you know, it's a lot of contention. And so I would say we've, we've realized the power of a collaboration. And, you know, I think that you have a generation of investors now that have experience as good board members um, steering company with good governance uh, versus, you know, surprise board meetings or surprise votes. Can you tell me more about how a productive relationship can develop between founders and board members? You know, I think it's uh, communication, constant communication. And it's not, the goal is not to micromanage any team or company. Like I said, there's probably two or three problems or two or three decisions that the CEO has at any given time. And I think if you're a CEO building a relationship with your board member that, you know, A, you share bad news quickly and good news slowly, you know, so they, they don't feel surprised. But using your board to make informed decisions, right? At the end of the day, my job is to give you advice, not to tell you what to do. And so I think the best relationships is where the CEOs come to the board and say, hey, here are the three issues that I'm dealing with. It could be a, a, a hire, hiring a VP of sales or a VP of engineering. It could be trying to figure out what markets to focus on or, or, or even like a large pricing decision, like how should I price my product or do I open source my product or not? And if you're for sharing, communicating information with the board, so it's not a surprise, get their advice, use them strategically, and then you can have a, a, a trusted relationship on those big decisions. And then on um, the development aspect, you know, I think CEOs and founders that are willing to be learners, as we, we say at, at Greylock, in terms of helping find development areas and honestly, like, hey, I want to work on my people skills, my management skills, and give me help or feedback on, on those aspects of me becoming a CEO. And then I think, Maybe the board member is not the right person to coach them on every aspect, but we can bring in exact coaches or resources or, or mentors um, to the board to help them. So I think communication is the foundation of a lot of relationships, like me and my partners, me and my friends, and, and the founders I work with. And then I think focusing on the two or three things that matter really is the best leverage point, right? Because board members, investors aren't going to know all the details of your company but if you give them enough data and say, these are the two or three areas where I, I think I can use help on, then you as a founder will get the most value from your board. And then I would say the last aspect is my job as a board member is to maybe throw one or two things at you that you may not be thinking about. You know, I, I think founders have a lot more um, vision forward, headlights, but maybe the peripheral vision is, is less clear. And so part of my job is you might say, these are two or three things I'm thinking about. And I might say, Jeff, what about you know, this company, this startup, this market that you may not be thinking about. And so my job is kind of help you think slightly differently. What is most misunderstood about modern venture capital? 
It's a great question. I'd say if you ask a lot of folks, VCs are all the same, right? I think if you, at the 30,000 foot level, you talk to most folks in the community, you think most venture capitalists, most venture capital firms are the same. They're just trying to throw money at the hot company in very indiscriminately trying to get lucky. I, I would say if you look up close at different individual VCs and venture capital firms and individual partners, you'll find that there's actually differences in how people think and work and coach and, 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 and how they invest. So we say, one, the, the first myth is, you know, it's all a, a monolith, and I don't think it is. Number two, I would say, you know, there's an adversarial selection that VCs are just trying to make money, and they're all, you know, they're they're not very value-added. I would say, you know, at Greylock, we like to think we're going to be partners and, and, and company builders and, and the folks behind the scenes helping you. So I would say that we're not here to try to, like, just invest and, and walk away and not do anything to make a, a quick return. We're here to be part of the journey. And, like, the joy I get from is, is seeing companies like, you know, Rocksack, Chronosphere, or some of the others ones that invest in, like, Instabase or Trera build, develop, and grow over time. And so I would say really understand that VC as a business is not just throwing money and, and, and trying to buy stock, but really helping differentiate the company. And we actually are... Are, I won't say human as well, but it's like we're, we're very different in terms of like how we think about investing. Do you see yourself staying in venture forever at this point or potentially going back to being an operator? Forever is a long time, Jeff. I think I'll be in venture for, for the foreseeable future, or at least, at least this turn of my career. Who knows what the future holds for you or I, but you know, for the next um, several years at least, I, I love what I do. I have a chance to work with great founders. I know um, uh, Martin and Rob, when they, when they took uh, my term sheet at Greylock, said, well, we're going to take your money, Jerry, but we got to make sure that you're, you're, you're going to be our partner and you're going to be in this job for the next 10 years, right? I said, count, count on that. I want to see this company go through an IPO. So for the next you know, several years, I love what I do. I have a, have a great platform at Greylock and great partners I get to work with and have a chance to be part of, of a journey with a bunch of incredible founders and companies. I can't see myself doing anything else differently right now. What are the uh, competitive? Uh, when I think about the modern venture landscape today, one thing that's that's changing is there are more and more of these sort of rogue venture people. Like you, we have, you know, these individuals raising a hundred million dollar funds or sixty million dollar funds, where it's just kind of a rogue dude or woman uh, making investments, uh, as opposed to these big platform. VCs, uh, what are the competitive dynamics there? How, how does the, the, the increase in rogue investors uh, tilt things in any particular direction? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if we call them rogue or, or how they would feel about that. But I'd say the following. They're both competition, but as well as um, allies. And I would say they're allies in the following ways, because these markets are huge. Like I said, like I, I you know, misestimated how big and how broad some of these markets are all the time. And what you see these individual operator funds are doing, is they're, they're tapping into their network and their network of, of co-workers or alumni from these companies. And so they're allies because as a one firm or one individual, it's hard for me to track every great engineer coming out of Stripe or every engineer coming out Uber, every engineer coming out of uh, Salesforce. And so in many ways, there's a bunch of companies getting started and it's easier to start a company today than it was 10, 20 years ago. And so all these smaller funds that are competition to be the first money in, in some ways, are helping 
in the following ways that they actually, you know, surface and find great founders that I can't track as, as a person. We, we say in venture capital, the capital is never the constraint, right? We can always raise more money if you're a great firm like a Greylock benchmark or Sequoia, but it's, it's hard to find more time. And so um, of these these new firms and these funds that from individuals, I think, yeah, it'll be, it'll be tough because I would love to be the first um, investor in, in this great company coming out of Airbnb. But on the flip side, um, it's really hard for any firm to kind of cover every market, every trend, every technology. And so to the extent that these funds and investors can help surface the, the ones that actually break out, that makes my job easier and I'll, I'll do the next round. And part of the flexibility and the greatness of, of having a platform like Greylock is we can actually do the next round after these investors if possible. All right. Well, Jerry, anything you want to add? Anything you want to close on? No, I think, Jeff, you've been doing a great job with Software Engineering Daily Podcast. It's a great service to the community. I, I, I listen to it all the time. And so thanks for the great questions today. And I look forward to our next conversation.